Welcome to the fifth edition of the Intertidal Podcast. Our first four episodes were really about getting comfortable with data, thinking about yourself as a data creator and a data steward, and making plans to use and have impact with your data, and eventually even erase that data, or maybe store it for some period of time. I hope you're feeling less like you're floundering around in a sea of data and more confident navigating your way through the data seascape. From here on out, we're going to be talking with people who are making data and tech work for the planet, even some terrestrial people, non-ocean and fish people. I know, I know, it's it's a change, but the intertidal is the intersection of land and sea, so we're going to tie it all together. We're going to start off salty, though, with Dr. John Wilson. He's down in Santa Barbara, California, which is also known as California's Elbow, and it's a transition zone in the ocean. Two major ocean turrets come together from north and south to support an amazing underwater ecosystem. It's a place that has sustained and sheltered humans for thousands of years, and it's a launching spot to the beautiful and wild Channel Islands, where, if you believe some national park reviews, there are just too many birds. We're going to talk about data and fish, yep, but also about the reality that decisions get made in the world, not just by data, but by people. How can you make that happen? How can you make that happen well and deliberately and use data in a smart and intentional way? We're also going to talk about the important fact that some dogs just want to surf. So here's our conversation. Welcome. Jono Wilson is our guest today. I'm very delighted to have this opportunity to talk to you in your special garage office. So say your name and introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Kate. This is a pleasure to be here. I'm John O. Wilson. I am a lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy, our California program. And I have been working on fisheries management and ocean conservation issues now for about 15 years, and I spend a lot of my time here in California, but also internationally. I work in a number of different fisheries across the globe with governments, with communities, with our partners on the ground, and I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Thanks, Jono. It's been a pleasure to get to know you over the course of years of doing work on different angles of conservation and ocean tech. And one reason I wanted to interview you for this podcast where I'm really digging into some of these issues around data and tech and conservation and starting with a lot of fisheries work is for the work behind Fish Path, which I think is a really interesting combination project where you start with the science and data needs. You really have a strategy and a set of objectives. You say, what, what do we need to get to sustainable management? And then you build a pathway to help people get there. Am I describing Fish Path accurately? Tell, tell us more about Fish Path and how it came to be. Happy to. Yeah, Fish Path is essentially that. It's a, it's a process that we have been designing now for about five years. It started as what's called a SNAP working group, a Science for Nature and People Partnership Working Group. That is a, a collaboration between the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Nature Conservancy, and UC Santa Barbara, NCS. And we got funding back in 2014 to bring together the world's experts in small-scale fisheries management, what at the time we were calling data-limited, data-poor fisheries management. And the goal of that working group was really to try to develop guidance, a framework for how fisheries managers on the ground, folks who were working in small-scale fisheries, primarily in the developing world, but could be anywhere, 
we were trying to figure out how we can provide guidance to them to make decisions, how to better manage their fisheries. And folks on the ground are dealing with these complex, wicked challenges of how do you decide in a multi-species, multi-gear fishery with dozens of landing sites and weak governance and different social structures from place to place, how do you embark upon instituting management reforms or, or any sort of management actions in a fishery like that? And so we thought that by bringing together all of these experts, I think we had folks from eight different countries, about 25 different folks um, come together and we explored what are the different data collection options that could be implemented in any fishery and have been implemented in a fishery across the globe? We identified there was something like 52 different data collection options. Then what sorts of analyses could you do given those data? And those we were terming data limited stock assessments. We've now since identified about 60 different data limited stock assessments that have been published. On top of that, you need to do something once you analyze the data, you need to implement management actions. And so we've identified that there are on the order of about 50 to 60 different types of management actions that could be implemented, ranging across 13 different families of actions like spatial closures and temporal closures and catch limits and effort limits and those sorts of things. And so we began this process of asking ourselves, when would each one of those, so for each of those 50 some odd data collection techniques, when would each one of those be ripe for implementation? Would it work in this type of fishery or this type of fishery? And we went down that list and we put together this giant matrix of options for every possible combination of fishery that we could think of. And then we quickly realized that we needed to work with partners on the ground to actually test this and to refine it and improve it. And so we worked with the government of Peru, the government of Mexico, and a couple other places across the globe to begin improving this process or this, this framework. And what we learned was that having that tool, having that matrix was not enough. It was more about how you engage with the stakeholders on the ground, how you lead a capacity building process, how you lead stakeholder workshops, how you bring people along in that management process. That's what really matters. So what you're saying is having a giant table of 500 options and just saying to someone, go for it, is not an appropriate or super effective strategy to get to management. It's exactly right. And in some respects, you know, that's how we thought we were going to start down that pathway. And yeah, like you said, you need much more than that. It's all about the process and the relationships and working with the folks on the ground to bring them through and hold their hand through the process of building a management plan. You talked about small scale fisheries, and I want to dig into that a little bit more because we haven't talked about it too much on the podcast before. But back in episode two, when I cited this recent paper about if you have management, it seems to be good for fisheries, essentially, the very boiled down version of that very complex paper you did. You know, this was a paper that recently came out, but it builds on the work that you were talking about doing with Fish Path, which is what would even the most basic improvements in management look like if you're in a situation where you don't have a lot of data and you don't have a lot of choices and you don't have a lot of money, what could you do that would be effective and get you to this place where some management really is measurably better than nothing? And so you talked about small scale fisheries and 
those are the bulk of the fisheries in the world, right? I mean, that is the, the, some of the largest percentage of fisheries by the number of participants. And there's that whole project, the Too Big to Ignore project that wants to remind people and gather research about these fisheries by saying it's not just big ships on the high seas and big industrial fisheries. A lot of the fisheries that are feeding people that are driving local economies are relatively small. So is that an accurate way of characterizing small scale fisheries? What would you say about what it is to be a small scale fishery and why we really want to invest in working with communities to improve that management? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So as you said, small-scale fisheries represent a significant fraction of the number of fisheries and close to half the global catch of seafood. And so by almost every measure in terms of catch, in terms of livelihoods, in terms of um, you know communities that are de- dependent upon well-managed fisheries, it's critical to work with them. And so that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to figure out how to rapidly and effectively bring management to those fisheries, uh, those that need them most. And so that's what we think FishPath is able to do. Uh, We think that by building this global network of folks who are trained in not only the use of that tool, FishPath, but also just in the facilitation process behind building management plans and the capacity building, that we can really make a difference in those fisheries. And that's what we're hoping to do over the next years. I think that's such a valuable insight to talk about building a structure, not just to identify data and have a data strategy and have a process for analyzing that data, but also to have a conversation about that data. Because one of the things we've been exploring in this podcast is data in and of itself doesn't determine the outcomes. It doesn't necessarily determine the decisions. It's a really important and valuable input. But at the end of the day, people are making the policies. They're making the decisions about what to go out and fish for, about what limits to set. And so creating the conditions to have conversations about some difficult choices that are maybe driven by better data, but decisions still have to be made by people. So FishPath is giving people a way to have those conversations. It is. And and that's part of the beauty of FishPath. What we're finding is that we go and we work in these in, with these governments or with these communities across the globe. And we sit down at the table. We generally lead with a two or three day workshop where we go through the actual tool itself. And what that tool does is it challenges all of those stakeholders. So we get folks around the table from the science community, from the fishing community, from the agency community. And we ask them those hard questions about what are the limitations of addressing particular challenges in your fishery. And we force those hard conversations early. And what we're finding is that we are talking with folks after these workshops who say, we have been working in these fisheries for a decade now, and never have we sat down at a table and gotten to the hard questions and aired all of our grievances and all of our different challenges that we're each experiencing in such a short amount of time. Thank you for for doing this. And that's really, I think, what the beauty of having this tool and having this process is, is it brings people together and gets right at the heart of those fisheries issues. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, kind of what's giving you hope in oceans and fisheries and, and clearly fish path is one thing that is doing that for you, even though it's a process that you started years ago 
as you said, you're still seeing people use it. You're still seeing it grow and, and have impact. But when I sent you that question, you sent me an email back and you said, I want to talk about conservation aquaculture. And I had the pleasure of being in a very beautiful location, hearing you give a presentation in which you figured out how to define the term conservation aquaculture. And this was a few months back, so it might have changed. So what is conservation aquaculture and why are you excited about it? Yeah, thanks for that. That was a very beautiful location. Hopefully we'll have the chance to go back there someday. So we have been thinking about challenges in the ocean. And you know, one of the things that does give me hope is that a lot of a lot of folks right now are talking about solutions. And I think that has changed over the past decade. And I think a lot of people are moving away from doom and gloom and trying to just document the negative aspects or the changes that are happening in our oceans. And they're really beginning to think about solutions. And so one of the solutions that we are thinking about is how do we restore ocean species? We think there's a lot of science and funding that has gone into terrestrial restoration projects. And so understanding how to go out and restore terrestrial systems, whether it's an oak forest or pine forest or, or other terrestrial systems, we don't see that same sort of science and resource um, contribution in the ocean realm. And so what we're trying to understand is how can we dramatically scale up our scientific understanding and the funding towards recovering and restoring species that are depleted in the ocean. And so the idea of conservation aquaculture is, is just that. Can you, can you use techniques from the aquaculture industry to cultivate organisms and then restore them into the wild or, or at least confer some sort of measurable conservation impact, uh, whether it's uh, carbon storage or actual enhancement of populations um, out in the wild. The idea of conservation aquaculture is that you can measure these conservation impacts. And so we're really beginning a, a new effort to understand whether or not it's possible here in California, but also across the globe to dramatically scale up uh, our ability to restore ocean species at scale. And so that's uh, part of the reason why I'm excited. And that's part of the reason why we were at that meeting uh, several months ago discussing what the future looks like. And looking at adorable baby abalone. They're so cute. <laughs> they are. They have those little, it looks like little eyelashes peeking out from under their shells. So the difference between conservation aquaculture and maybe just aquaculture, aquaculture is that aquaculture, aquaculture is for us to eat. It's right. really focused on food, but conservation aquaculture, maybe you can eat it and eating it is kind of a side benefit as opposed to you know, it's real core conservation goals. Yeah, I think that's right. Dr. Holly Froelich at UCSB, who I collaborate with, uh, coined the term, as far as I know, uh, in a paper back in 2017, where we're not attempting to exclude commercial aquaculture production from the conversation of conservation aquaculture. Essentially, though, you have to be able to measure the conservation benefits from your aquaculture endeavor. And so there are definite circumstances where commercial production of, of seafood products uh, will also confer conservation benefits. And that's great. That can be defined as conservation aquaculture, but you simply just have to be able to measure it. And you have to have an intent to go out with you know, the purpose of conserving and producing conservation benefits. 
So you've set yourself up with another data challenge right there with your conservation aquaculture. You're going to have to set a target based on some assessment of the current conditions. You're going to have to figure out some tools and tricks to measure those benefits as well as measure any negative impacts as well. That's exactly right. And that's, you know, part of, as I mentioned earlier, you know, part of the challenge that we're seeing right now is just that there isn't enough science being devoted to this idea of conservation art, uh, aquaculture. How do you set those targets? How do you measure those, those benefits? And really, I see that as a frontier and one that we're just now beginning to understand, uh, to, you know, undertake. Um, there's a lot of effort being done on kind of mangrove restoration or even coral reef restoration, but coral reef restoration still isn't done at scale, uh, the type of scale that we're talking about. And so if we want to really restore our oceans and, and achieve uh, these targets, first, we have to be able to measure and, and define those targets. Uh, but then we have to figure out how to grow these species at scale and what sorts of things do we need to be concerned about when we put these organisms back out into the wild? What are those impacts that are going to occur on to the ecosystem, to communities, uh, and how do we measure those and how do we reconcile them? How do we how do we ensure that what we're doing does achieve net positive change in the environment um, rather than, you know, some potential negative consequences that could occur if, if done improperly? So how would you use data and data targets to move forward on a conservation aquaculture project at a time when the climate and the ocean really are changing and you want to take action sooner rather than later, but at the same time, you're trying to be deliberate and careful and really data-driven. How do you make that trade-off between having enough data to act and not having enough data and wanting to be cautious? I'd love it if you could tell me. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but okay. I mean, you know, but episode honestly, episode seven, we'll work on yeah, that episode right? seven. <laughs> but I think that is the challenge. I mean, that's the inevitable, like you said, trade off that we're going to have to make and we're going to have to figure it out. And I, I don't have an easy solution right now as to what that will look like. Um, you know, one of the things I'd, I'd love to be thinking about in the future is how to get together a working group of folks to be thinking about those sorts of issues. And what are those hard challenges that we're going to have to address? And, and when do you know? whether what you're doing is right. When do you know if you have enough data? I don't know the answer right now, but I think it is a frontier of science and one that I'm excited to begin thinking about. So are there other things you want to talk about that are that are giving you hope or, or things actually maybe that you're super frustrated by that you wish other people would come and help work with you on? Well, let's start with the things that are giving me hope. How about that? That sounds a little more fun. <laughs> Great. Let's start with hope. Let's see here. I, you know, some of the things that I am really hopeful and excited about, um, and, it, and it stems back from this fish path work and working with communities and governments to, to achieve these solutions. I really see a lot of folks uh, beginning to recognize the importance of stakeholder involvement, whether that's through collaborative fisheries research, whether it's just having a seat at the table, whether it's through integrating local knowledge into decision-making. You know, I think there's a whole different range of approaches that uh, I'm seeing come to fruition in terms of including stakeholders in decision-making in fisheries. And it's just one of the things that, you know, I've always worked towards. I've always, you know, tried to figure out ways to, to get folks a seat at that table. And I just see more and more of it on a daily basis. And 
It's something that I think will improve our management systems overall. It's uh, one of the things that I think will help us achieve conservation at scale. It's help us achieve effective fisheries management at scale. It's when folks who are either in industry or you know, with the fishing industry or in other industries for that matter, who are stakeholders in the fishery, when they have a say in management, uh, I think it improves outcomes across a whole suite of, of spectrums. Great. So you just want to skip the frustration points for now? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Is that all right? Excellent. Can we do that? We do not have to dig into the frustrations. But I do want to ask you a little bit about how you ended up where you ended up. So you're down in Santa Barbara, California, which many people would agree is a particularly lovely place to get to work. And you wear a lot of different hats. You're not just with the Nature Conservancy, you're associated with the university down there. And you've been a part of a a lot of other cross-disciplinary projects in the same way that you're saying you're inspired when people come together from different sectors. You too have done that work. So for people listening to this podcast who are thinking, well, how do I have a career like that? How do I end up as somebody who can be an intersection of different ideas and organizations for awesome ocean change? Do you have any key stories from your path about you know, places where you had a choice and you said, well, if I do this, maybe that'll lead me to the place that you're in now or kind of key tidbits that have helped guide you into this really rich place that you are today. Yeah. And I, and I still make those decisions on a monthly basis, to be honest. Um, so yeah, you're right. I do have a, a really interesting position. So I am employed by the Nature Conservancy, uh, but they are a, a tremendous organization and they have encouraged me to build relationships, build collaborations with the folks at the Bren School of the University of California, Santa Barbara. And so I have um, secured a position as an adjunct professor there at the Bren School, thanks to a number of faculty who have endorsed me and supported me. And so my office is there and I get the opportunity to work with students, with graduate students and undergrads, uh, as well as postdocs. And I, I do, I, I participate in a number of different collaborative research endeavors um, with folks from, from that school. So folks in industrial ecology, folks in the social sciences, folks in marine ecology and economics. And it's a really exciting place to be. I'd say, you know, I never really knew exactly that this was the position that I wanted, but uh, I knew that, you know, when I went and got my doctorate at Friend School, that I, I didn't necessarily just want to go into the academic field. And so when I was, um, graduating from my from my doctorate, the Nature Conservancy and um, the Sustainable Fisheries Group, which is now MLAB, got together and offered me a joint postdoctoral position. And so I think once I saw that that was possible, that sort of intersection between the non-governmental world and academia, I just continued to explore whether or not that was possible to keep going down that path. And really, nobody has said no. And, and it seems to benefit both sides um, having me in this position. We, as the Nature Conservancy, get to tap into the wealth of resources that uh, are the students and the academic community at UCSB. And UCSB gets to tap into the Nature Conservancy's applied challenges that we bring to the table. And so we're out there solving real world problems and, and bringing students out into the field. And it's a really great collaboration that I don't see any end to. 
But does that mean you have to work 200% time because you're actually working two full-time jobs? You know, it, it goes both ways. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, it, at times it is hard. At times it's, um, you know, a challenge to put on both those hats and, and to be looking on both sides of, of the aisle there, so to speak. But really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for anything. You know, I get, I get resources that folks at the Nature Conservancy don't necessarily get in terms of being able to tap into students and being able to help uh, or have students help me deliver some of my products and objectives for the Nature Conservancy and then, and then vice versa. We get to bring money and other resources from the Nature Conservancy into the academic world. And so, again, I, I think it's a, it's a great uh, collaboration and benefits both sides. And somewhere in all of that, you found time to teach your dog how to surf? You know, it, it wasn't so much as me teaching my dog how to surf as my dog looking at me surfing and wanting to do it. It was one of those things that, you know, I like, I, I teach my, my kids baseball and all, all sorts of sports. And it's a, it seems like it's a constant battle. It's a constant, like, you know, attempt to improve their throwing motion, whatever it might be. My dog, Thule, who's a black lab. She saw for the first time, uh, we, she was adopted. She was a, a rescue. Uh, we took her to the beach. I would say a week after we got her home, she saw me out on a longboard on a wave and immediately swam out, started swimming circles around me. I didn't have to do anything. She tried to get up on the board and before I knew it, there she was on all fours, standing <laughs> on the board, just tongue hanging out, happy as could be, tail wagging. So the next logical thing to do was to simply push her into a wave. And ever since that time, anytime I go surfing or we bring the family to the beach, she is out there in the water wanting to surf. It's incredible. She's getting old now, though. Does she have her own board? God, I never thought about that. That's a great <laughs> idea. No, she uses mine. But what am I thinking? I should have one designed. Yeah, you should have one. And then she wouldn't try to push you off yours. She'd have her own. Yeah, exactly. Do side by side. There's, there's <laughs> your holiday card right there. Side by side. That would be great. Yeah, we thought about entering into competitions and all that, but just haven't found the time. You know, you don't always want to turn your hobbies into professional pursuits. Sometimes it right. takes the joy out. Well, thanks, Jono. This has been a great conversation all about great ocean and, and data issues. Anything else you want to make sure we talk about or anyone you want to give a shout out before we wrap this up? I'd be happy if, if we do have time. You know, one thing I wanted to mention was um, just in terms of the data and its impact and where I'm seeing progress and bright spots. I definitely am seeing a, a few bright spots um, from some work that colleagues of, of mine are doing. And maybe I could just quickly just introduce one of those, which is Poseidon, which is this, it's essentially a web application that allows anybody, any user of whether it's a harvester or a manager or cooperative of fishers to really build action ready data sets that uh, they use, it uses nothing more than a digital camera and a computer. So essentially it's this uh, combination of machine learning and computer vision software that allows folks to snap photos on their smartphone um, or any camera for that matter, as long as they can upload it to a computer. And then the machine learning algorithm will automatically measure the length of that organism. And so we've been building out some visualization tools around this. We're, we're currently piloting it in a number of fisheries, um, primarily on the West Coast of uh, North America. And we're getting some really good feedback and um, some positive signs that this tool not only can 
rapidly imp or improve the, the collection of data in, in time and space, but also help these communities or these managers to make informed management decisions. So we're building out these visualization tools around uh, the Poseidon platform, which help folks to, in real time, be able to snap that photo, upload that photo, and populate, let's say, a histogram of lengths uh, in relation to the size limit or in relation to the size at reproductive maturity of that organism. And so it can help them to really understand whether or not their catch uh, is above or below some target that they might set for, for their community or for their cooperative. And so I'm just really excited about that as a, as a future data collection platform. Um, I think it offers a lot of promise. So is this kind of a version 2.0 of the old thing called ab ruler where you were taking it pictures is. of abalone and and you could take them a picture next to a quarter and it would tell you how big your abalone was because for here in California in order to catch abalone they have to be over a certain size and this allowed people to both detect the size but also potentially report their abalone and prove to the managers that they were catching the right size abalone and so you were part of the team that developed that and had mixed success at least in terms of people on the management side wanting to use it but it sounds like the technology was exciting enough that you made a decision to try and expand it how did that happen yeah, we took those learnings from the abalone fishery. So you're right that uh, we were working with a group of, of fishers in that fishery, recreational divers, to pilot the technology and to really prove out whether or not it could work. Definitely mixed results there, but we've continued to build upon that technology over the past couple of years. <clears throat> and we're at a point right now where I think we're piloting in five different fisheries. And we see that the more and more images that we feed to it, the better the algorithm can get. And the opportunity, for example, removing the quarter out of that field of view um, is growing. And we, for instance, down in La Paz, in a cooperative down there, uh, these, this group of fishers um, in the El Manglito community is fishing for a number of different mollusk species. I think right now they're fishing for mussels and they're using the technology really to understand whether or not their catch is above or below the size of reproductive maturity and size limit, like, like I mentioned. And it is offering them a chance to really engage with the managers in their community and to understand whether or not they should continue to harvest throughout the season, whether or not they're having an impact on the resource but through a declining size distribution. They're really able to make their own informed management decisions about whether or not what they are doing should continue whether it's sustainable, whether or not they should uh, scale back their effort a little bit. So it's having those sorts of impacts. And, you know, we really see a future for this um, in that sort of model of working with communities, working with cooperatives to empower them with a data collection tool that they otherwise wouldn't have. And so happy to, you know, keep working on that and keep improving the technology. That's a really exciting story about the power of, of visual data to have those kinds of conversations. We we started when we were talking about fish path, right? It's a it's a verified record. It's a story, a data driven story in that image and in that set of images that gives you real time feedback and enables you to have a really robust conversation with the people who you're managing with, who are enforcing the fishery and with your co op members, and say, hey, look, this is what I did. You know, you can see exactly what I did. Now that you see what's going on and how I'm engaging with this fishery, what do you want to do? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Any any time that you can involve stakeholders, fishers or otherwise, in that decision-making process, being a part of the management system, you're only going to realize benefits out of that. Um, that's my experience, and um, I think by, by scaling tools such as this, there's a bright future ahead for sustainable fisheries management, especially in those small-scale fishing communities. Thanks for joining us today. Clearly, this episode is brought to you by abalone, particularly baby abalone. And we could maybe do an entire episode on abalone if you know any abalone researchers or abalone enthusiasts or historical abalone researchers. Please feel free to send me some tips at hello at intertidal.agency. But I'd like to share just one particular abalone story, which is many years ago, I got to listen to a historian talk about the early days of abalone diving in California, back when you had to dive with these sweaters that were coated in rubber. They were makeshift diving suits, and you had those old metal bells over your head with glass panes. And so someone was diving 50, 60 feet down, and the glass in their mask cracked and was letting in water. They didn't know what to do. They weren't sure they'd be able to get back up and surface safely in time. And they realized they had a bag full of abalone, which are a very strong snail with a very big foot. So they reached into their bag, picked out an abalone, and slapped it on the front of the glass. And it sealed to the front of it and closed up the crack, and they were able to surface safely. It's a very strong, very beautiful, and very tasty snail. This episode was, as always, produced by the great Melanie Scroggins. We look forward to talking to you on the next pod.